This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. happening we have got a special happy holiday episode of the inside football podcast with bill pauline for you guys you guys loved it when we did it before so we thought as a little holiday bonus in this week's episode we would do ask bill anything number two and this one we cover a lot of ground i think you guys are going to be excited we get into things like what actually happened with the aaf how do meetings work on mondays in the nfl how did film sessions work? And a little bit of Hall of Fame talk. So sit back, get ready, and enjoy this special episode of the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian. This is Ask Bill Anything, number two. My lamp is lit. Mine is lit. I'm glowing in the dark. Here we go, gang. The lamp is lit. We have just ended a very interesting conversation about college football and these warm-up for the show, and we have got a fun one for you today on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Pullen. We we promised you a little post-Christmas, that last present that would be sitting under the tree, and you get to open it today, the, the Monday after Christmas. We're giving you Ask Bill Anything number two. I'm psyched. Are you guys ready for it? All set. I can barely sit in my chair. Go ahead, Scott. Here we go. You guys loved it. Let's dive in. Picking up where we left off last time. Question number one. How do Monday tape sessions work in the NFL? Does the GM ever attend them? And given the intense pressure on everybody in the league, did those tape sessions ever get confrontational? Well, I'll explain to you how it works. There's kind of there's, there's two different ways. When I was in Buffalo, Coach Levy and I would watch the tape together on Monday morning. Uh, And then he would meet with the staff. The staff would watch the tape individually and then as platoon groups, offense and defense. Uh, In in, uh, Carolina, we followed the same procedure. I watched the tape with Coach Capers. Uh, In Indianapolis, we did it a little bit differently. I watched the tape with the scouting staff and then the senior people on the scouting staff and I met with the coaching staff for a couple of hours after they and Tony had watched the tape together. Um, Tony would sit in with offense and defense. Uh, so um, then the, the post uh, the post tape meeting would begin and um, now keep in mind that in all three places, we won quite a bit. So, you know, there there wasn't a lot of recrimination and a, a lot of frustration on any given day. You know, the likelihood is six out of ten times you won and, and maybe four out of that ten you blew the opposition out. Um, so maybe it's not as 
as representative as someone who had a rockier uh, a rockier run, but uh, it would be quiet. Um, it would be uh, specific. Uh, we had a standard of performance, which was regardless of the score, did this player turn in a winning performance? If, for example, the running back turned in a winning performance, if he averaged 4.7 yards a carry and and had, you know, four catches for 12 yards per catch and picked up all of his blocking assignments and the quarterback happened to throw two interceptions and 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 a couple of receivers dropped two balls and we blew a couple of coverages and lost the game, the running back uh, turned in a winning performance. So we would grade each player uh, throughout. Each coach would talk about it. He would talk about how the player played and what he felt the player did well and what he did poorly and what he wanted to emphasize in the individual period in the coming week. And then at the end of it, um, Coach would talk about um, his his perceptions of, of the game. Um, there might be some discussion as to uh, what occurred on a specific play. Keep in mind, in all three places, the players were not in. <clears throat> Excuse me, the players would come in following this meeting and uh, and meet with the coaches and view the, ta- the tape again, and the coaches would make their corrections. So, for example, if we missed a blitz pickup, Howard Mudd, the offensive line coach, would say, this was supposed to be scat protection, which meant that we were supposed to turn the offensive line uh, left. Um, and the back was supposed to pick up the running back. But he said, Jeff Saturday may have made a call to change that on the line of scrimmage. And I don't know that. And I didn't ask him about it yesterday. So I'll find out about it today in the meeting. That's 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 not uncommon at all. In the secondary, for example, um, and and this this always drives me crazy when I read these stories that say this player was credited with uh, seventeen uh, positive plays and four negative plays. By whom? The coaches aren't giving out those statistics. <laughs> so in real life, in real life, uh, the it, what would happen in the meeting is uh, I might raise a question. I'd say, you know, what happened on the coverage? Yesterday, I know we were in cover two and we got trips and, and they ran the, the one receiver down the middle. Who was, who was supposed to have him? And the, the defensive coordinator might say, um, I don't know. I, I got to ask Bethea about that. That was the coverage really wasn't, uh, wasn't two. It was one lurk. And, uh, and I know that the lurker, meaning a, the, the safety who was supposed to be in the middle of the field, didn't get there. But I don't know if Bethea called him off. I'll ask in a meeting. And then that night at dinner, he might say to me, Bethea gave him the wrong call. That's, that's why we missed it. So you, you don't, none of these outside experts, quote, unquote, uh, have any idea what the calls were. So they, they can't possibly tell who was at fault. Um, and, 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 you, and they can't possibly tell uh, what the what the DBs, for example, saw, which caused them to make that call, all of that is the post mortem, 
and it's all it's all done quietly. Um, very very few, n never any any histrionics that I can ever remember. Um, it's all matter of fact. The only one that's uh, that's a grind your teeth kind of uh, uh, meeting is is the one that follows the last loss of the season, whether it be in the Super Bowl or or the regular season. And there, virtually every coach I've worked with has said, you know, today's not the time for recrimination, nor is it the time for us to um, to grade every player. We're going to do that on a season-wide basis. So let's just go through the game like we normally do, and then everybody take a deep breath and go home, and uh, we'll convene back here, uh, you know, 10 days from now and get on with the work of, of, of uh, deciding, you know, what our squad's going to be for the following year. So th there aren't, there aren't a, a lot of hysteronics. And uh, I've been in two cases where there have been firings. One was my own. <laughs> and, uh, and the other was of a coach. And in that case, um, you know, the meeting, the meeting isn't held. Um, ownership or senior management would come in and say, fellas, we're not going to have a meeting today. We'll call you. We'll let you know. Go back to your offices and we'll let you know when, when we're ready to discuss things. And they know it's coming anyway. I mean, it's not surprised anyone. In my case, it, it, it was, but, but that's, that's a rarity. It was in your case. <laughs> but let me ask you a quick follow-up before I ask the next listener question. In retrospect, uh, you have two different methodologies you had the 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 Buffalo uh, Carolina methodology of doing it, and then you had the Annapolis. Did did one in retrospect work better than the other, or is is process not that really important in the end? Well, process is always important, but the the process is viewing the tape and grading it, and hearing what everyone has to say, and it doesn't matter you know, who you sit with as long as you're hearing it from from the, the people who know. So whether you're sitting with the coach watching the tape or whether you're discussing it with the staff at a later time, it doesn't matter as long as you're discussing it. Okay. So it doesn't matter which precedes which, as long as no. you have it all out there by the, by the end of the process. That's correct. That's okay. correct. Uh, all right, mo moving on. Uh, this is a, a, a little less intellectual question, but certainly is just as important. Still a good one. It, it, yes, it is. Absolutely. Bill, if, if you were running a team still, who would you have selected if you had the number one pick in the last the 2020 draft? The last draft. Well, if I, if I wanted, um, if I wanted a quarterback, uh, I, I probably I probably would have selected one of Burrow or Herbert. And uh, if I wanted a defensive player, it would have been Young, Chase Young. Hey, we like that. You can't go wrong, you know, with any of those. That one seems to be working out. We like we like it. Yeah, and I, I, it's interesting because I still feel um, that – I think as 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 an industry we missed the boat on Herbert and I know why I know why um there was far too much noise out there and I've talked to Tom Telesco in San Diego and 
And he said to me prior to making the pick that uh, he was convinced that the kid was going to be good. Not as good, obviously, <laughs> as he's turned out to be. Nobody can predict that. But um, he said, I was convinced that he was going to be good. And I was, I, you know, the static was bothering me. But he said, I just, I, you know, I channeled what what we always used to say, which is block the noise out and and make the right decision. And, you know, Bill, sometimes, and we, we've discussed this, I, I know we've discussed, I think on the show as well, you know, sometimes, you know, when you're out there and, and you, you have some certitude about something, you want everybody else going in a different direction so they don't preclude you by doing what you want to do prior to your getting there. So that's, that's really not all a bad thing. No, it's not. Not at all. All right. Well, here we go. All right. So feel free to freelance with this one because I think the criteria is going to be uh, a little tricky. But so besides the obvious guys who made the Hall of Fame, in Bill's opinion, who are his top three draft picks ever? Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Um, this is a really hard question because I've had, you know, is it is Antoine Bethea in this discussion? You bet. You know, does Gary Brackett enter this discussion? You bet. Um, you know, there, there's, you probably end up, I started out by, listing about 12 names. So then how, how do you get to three? Well, in the end, um, my criteria was, but for injury uh, or lack of publicity, um, I ended up, or, or, or a Hall of Famer in front of him, I ended up with, with well, uh, our center in Buffalo was not a draft choice. See, we got him from the USFL. So I, I and he should be in the Hall of Fame, but DeMonte Dawson was in the AFC uh, one notch, you know, a half a notch above him, Kent Hull. So... But but I excluded him in the end because he wasn't a draft choice, although we did sign him as a free agent. Um, signed him to uh, second round money, and it was the best one of the best signings I ever made. Um, so I'll go with Will Wolford, um, who played left tackle in the league for more than ten years and was terrific. Um, Dallas Clark who is a candidate for the Hall of Fame and I think eventually will make it. It's hard for tight ends to make it, but when you look at his his numbers over the time he played, they're outstanding. And you look at the contribution he made, but it, it's he's going to be a long shot for the Hall of Fame um, because tight ends, as I say, don't don't typically get in. And And, of course, Bob Sanders, who but for injuries <laughs> – would have had the same career as, as Troy Polamalu, the same guy. So I would have to say that's that's the those would be the three. With apologies to Antoine Bethea and Gary Brackett and, and many more. I feel like if you're a fan of the show, you probably could have just asked, who are the top two and Bob Sanders? Exactly. <laughs> well, no, I get, honestly, I gave yeah. it a good analysis. 
I really did. You did. I liked it. We came to the conclusion I figured you would come to. Right. You're right. But, you know, but Bob Sanders, Polian definitely deserved a spot. So, okay. <laughs> he was defensive player of the year one year. So that's right. That's, that's, that's a good enough. Uh, that's a good enough recommendation. All right. Here's one that doesn't so much put you on the spot. Bill, what, what happens with bad officiated calls in the NFL? How are they triaged? How does the team communicate their displeasure with the league? What does the league try and do to make it right? Um, okay, the way you the way you um, you communicate is that the head coach and the general manager uh, are given a what we used to call a complaint sheet, uh, where you put down the down and distance, the time in the game, the play, the the penalty that should or should not have been called. And um, after a while, um, the league office limited you to 15 plays that you could that you could raise <laughs> questions on. Because right. too many people were sending in 25 and 30 plays. Now, <laughs> what Tony and I would do would be, because we both served on the competition committee, we, we would actually combine ours because in the end, 95% of each of our sheets consisted of the same plays. Um, and so you send those to the league office on Monday after you've watched the tape. And then by Thursday, they get back to you with a written, uh, there's a place on the sheet for them to make a notation. They get back to you with a written explanation of why they made the call. And then if you don't like the explanation, Tony at that point had moved on and would leave the rest of the dialogue with the league office to me. And it's with the officiating department. And, uh, and so when the sheet would come back on Thursday, that would make for some, uh, shall we say, testy conversations based on what you got back uh, from the, from the league office. Uh, And, and most of it was with the, with the supervisor of officiating Mike, Pereira, in my case, uh, way back when, uh, in, in years previous, uh, uh, the legendary Art McNally. Um, and, and Art, by the way, had the patience of a saint and was a great teacher. He, would, he could explain things really well. Um, the object being for you to understand the philosophy of officiating that, that they're applying. Because unless you know the philosophy you can't really uh, make a judgment on on what an official is doing. Uh, that's why all of the internet directors of officiating and website um, directors of officiating, uh, <laughs> I say that with tongue planted firmly in my cheek, um, uh, have no idea uh, what they're talking about in most cases because they don't understand the philosophy that the officials are taught. And <clears throat> there's a book which uh, uh, which details for the officials, it's not available to the general public, it details that philosophy. Um, and, and it's called the AP book, Approved Rulings. Um, so it, it, it tells them these are the approved rulings in such and such a situation. Um, once you have that conversation on Thursday, it's over and done with. 
Uh, clubs do not have the right to grade officials. Uh, clubs don't see how the officials are graded. Um, they don't know uh, uh, under what circumstances officials are hired or fired. Um, they're never privy to that. And the competition committee is never privy to that. We're only told who is going to, who's, who's been let go. It, it's happened by that time and who is coming up. We're given names, but not reasons. Um, and that's, that's the deed is already done by that time. So you're not, you're not, um, laughing at someone's, you know, sad expense that they're losing their jobs. But the, when, when, when we see those names, the sarcastic comments are, <laughs> are quite funny, <laughs> yeah. you know, such as, uh, well, uh, we let Joe Blow retire and, you know, what took you so long? Yeah. <laughs> or he, he, he's been retired for the last six years. You just found out. <laughs> Things of that hey, nature. The more, the, the more jacked these officials get, probably the scarier those conversations are, though. Well, well it was, uh, there was certainly one guy you'd be scared of. But Bill, did, 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 is there a difference between uh, a, mis, a misinterpretation of a rule and say what in retrospect was just a bad judgment call. And in either case, does the league admit, yes, that was the wrong interpretation, or yes, that was a bad measurement, or that should have been called this way? Do, do they ever let you know that you're right, he should have done it differently? When it, when it comes to game and, um, administration, uh, rules administration, meaning did they, did they apply the rule properly, um, they will always admit if they made a mistake. Uh, they will rarely admit it publicly, but if there's enough hue and cry, and if the game is a is a notoriously enough, you know, covered game, they will they'll make a public statement from time to time. But they'll always tell you privately, um, yeah, uh, we made a mistake on this, and often. If the mistakes are egregious enough, and there were two last night that were relatively obvious, um, they will say, "Yeah, we missed that on the sheet." They'll say, "We missed that," and that, and then it can be a little testy, because your response is, "If I were Pittsburgh, for example, I would say um, it, number eleven was it clearly interfered with. It's clear. It's as clear as a bell." And that was a first down, and we kept the ball, and you took away a chance for us to win the game. And and or earlier in the in the in the first half, you know, it was clearly interference, very possibly helmet to helmet, and Ebron was hurt, and you didn't throw the flag. And you can tell from the tone of my voice that's the way those discussions go, and the officiating supervisor has to be able to say, listen. I understand. We're all human. And, you know, and sometimes the response is, why is that guy working? You know, if he can't make that call, those are two easy calls. If you can't do that, he shouldn't be working. And then, the, you know, the the supervisor will mollify you and say, look, he's being downgraded. And that's how they that's how they try and and, and mollify you. But they never can. Um, yeah. <laughs> and the more the more important the game you know, the more heated the discussions are, they're, 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 I wouldn't say they're gentlemen, gentlemanly, they're civil, but, but 
they can be heated because people's jobs are on the line. A lot of money's on the line here. And, and you know, for officials to blow calls, let, let's, let's, let's use the championship game between the Rams and New Orleans as an example. I felt then and still feel now that that crew should have been suspended. The entire crew should have been suspended for the opening game of the following year. I think the, the public, the fans of New Orleans, Sean Payton, his players, the organization, needed to know that the officials paid a price for blowing that call that cost them the Super Bowl. Um, the league chose to do otherwise, but I'm not afraid to make that statement now because I've said it publicly and I've said it privately. Um, I, I, I don't think we... I'm not for nitpicky suspensions. I'm not for corrosively trying to blame officials week after week after week the way some websites do. Um, that That's corrosive to officiating. And that word was used to me by Commissioner Tagliabue. And as you can tell, it stuck. Um, so I'm not for that. But in the case of an egregious mistake, that affects so many people's livelihoods and lives, uh, I think that there, there ought to be some accountability beyond just, well, they were downgraded. I mean, it seems like there is for everybody else involved in the sport. So, you know, why should they be different? Yeah, well, that, that's, that, well, you know, I, I, I'm not one for relativity. I think it's because they're just so fit now. <laughs> this has got to be the most crazy jacked officials have ever been in the NFL. Right? Uh, uh, you you, th you think NFL players are scared of NFL officials, Scott? There are a couple officials who I would not want to meet in a dark alley these days. I'm just putting yeah. it out there. Yeah, but there's about a thousand NFL players you wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley. <laughs> true, true. Uh, all right, Here, this is going to build. I know this this one might be a little bit of a conflict of interest. So just answer as you can. But so three Bill guys are Hall of Fame semifinalists this year. Who gets in, if any, between Tasker, Mills, and Bennett? And his opinion, who rightfully should. And then speaking of Tasker, why don't more special teams-oriented players make it to the Hall? For example, a player like Brian Mitchell. Well, I can't tell you who gets in. Um, I'm a voter, uh, number one, so it would be inappropriate of me to do so. Um, but, um, but I can't, but I can't tell you because I don't, I don't know how the, the voters will vote and I'm only one vote out of 42. It takes 80% to get someone in. Um, I think all three are deserving. Uh, if you rank them in terms of, of their contribution to the teams that I was with, I would say Bennett and, and Tasker are tied although Tasker was unique and Sam is kind of a, you know, maybe a length behind them in terms of the fact that he played inside linebacker in a, in a three, four. And, and his, his, aside from being a very good player, he was a great leader. Um, and, and, and that's an intangible that that's, that's hard to, uh, that, that's hard to uh, define. Um, in terms of Steve, he is absolutely unique in that he played on every special team, not just the core four. Um, 
He would have been our number one returner and did return in big games, games that affected the playoffs and things like that and, and in the playoffs, both punts and kickoffs. But Marv wouldn't allow him to do it because he was afraid of getting him hurt uh, because he was so effective in, in the other facets of the game in special teams. He changed every special team assignment he ever got. He was the best at it. He was the best gunner. He was the best blocker of gunners. He was the best cover guy on kickoffs I have ever seen. He had an absolute knack for getting free. He's a little guy, 5 feet 10, maybe 195 pounds. He, he, he could slip blocks like nobody's business. He was the best open field tackler I've ever seen. Um, he was the best blocker of kicks we had and had many in his career and threatened many. Um, he did everything right uh, uh, on every special team he, he played upon, uh, uh, which was every one. And he was also a great holder, by the way. Um, he was the backup holder, uh, but he could have been, uh, you know, the best holder we had. Uh, if we wanted him to. Uh, and he was also a great wide receiver. He would have been no worse than our fourth wide receiver and very likely challenged for the third job. Uh, but Marv wouldn't allow him to do it because he didn't want him to get hurt. <laughs> he, he was so valuable to us on special teams. Why are no special teams players in the Hall of Fame? Um, Let's come back to that in, in March after I've been through a meeting <laughs> and, 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 okay. and I'll give you I'll give you a better I'll give you a better uh, read on that. But what I'm going to say, I'm happy to preview what I'm going to say about Steve and Cornelius. Let me start with Cornelius. Cornelius changed our defense. We went from being a good defense to a great and dominating defense. Cornelius Bennett was the missing piece in the puzzle because he gave us a guy opposite Bruce Smith in the four down um, uh, nickel situation who could beat any pass blocker in America. Didn't matter who. So you couldn't block Bruce Smith and you couldn't block Cornelius Bennett. It was that simple. So you had to chip, you had to double team, you had to do all kinds of those things and that, of course, freed up others, um, inside rushers, Freddie Smurlis, Jeff Wright, uh, you know, et cetera, um, to, to, be re uh, to be really, really effective. Um, and without him, Bruce would not have been as effective as he was. And don't forget, Bruce is the all-time sack leader. Um, and a lot of those were set up by Cornelius Bennett, uh, putting pressure on the other side. Um, secondly, he was um, in the same class as Lawrence Taylor in terms of an athletic linebacker who could make every play on the football field. Um, he was not as consistent as Jack Ham, who to me was the most consistent outside linebacker doing everything but rushing the passer in, in that I've ever seen. Um, Jack Ham could stand up a tight end. He could beat a double team. Um, I don't know. I don't remember Jack Ham ever getting hook blocked. I'm sure he was at some point, but 
I never saw it. And uh, and I was an advanced scout watching those teams for, for quite some time in Pittsburgh. Um, and Cornelius was the same way. Um, if Cornelius decided he wasn't going to get hooked, he wasn't going to get hooked. It's that simple. And he'd normally take a tight end and throw him, uh, you know, into the backfield. Don't forget, Cornelius played on the, on the left-hand side of our defense, which made the fact that he was against the tight end and tackle most of the time because most teams are right-handed, especially in those days. So uh, he could do that. He could drop into coverage. He could rush the passer, as we said. Um, he, he could he could uh, do things in the open field that were absolutely amazing. Two Cornelius Bennett stories. The first is when he arrived in Buffalo after having been out of football for a year. Hadn't played in a year um, because he was a holdout. Uh, Marv was asked at the press conference, are you going to play him? They're playing, we're going to play the Broncos the following week. And uh, and he said, no, no, no. He, we can't get him ready. We need, he needs time, conditioning, et cetera. So Wednesday comes around, and we're out on the practice field, and, uh, and Bob Ferguson, our pro personnel director, calls me. He said, you better get down here. I thought, ooh, what's wrong? What happened? He said, no, no, just get down here. So I came down. I was in my office, and we're watching Cornelius in, in individual drill. And he's like literally leaping over, leaping over dummies that are four feet high, five feet high. I said, my God, you know, how does he do that? <laughs> and he's in superb <laughs> shape. So we go through uh, practice, and... Wolford comes up to me after practice, Will Wolford, and he said, where, where did you get this guy from, Mars? And he said, I can't block him. <laughs> and so at the press conference that night after practice, Marv's asked, uh, how did he look? And Marv said, well, he looked okay. You know, he's in, he's in pretty good shape. Uh, but I still don't think we can, we can play him. And uh, so the next day, now we, we – we're going pretty full bore. You know, this is the last hard practice and he's terrorizing everyone. No one can block him. And, and so Kelly comes up to me after practice and says, "Woo, whatever you paid him, it's too little. (laughs) So after practice, Marv is asked and he says, well, you know, we might get him in the nickel somewhere. We could we'll give him a couple of rushes where that's all he has to do. He doesn't know our stuff. I don't know what kind of condition he's in, but we, we may, we'll dress him and we may give him a couple of rushes in nickel situations. Okay. Game day comes. So in the first quarter, uh, the Broncos are backed up in their own end. Cornelius comes in the game. It's the first nickel package we run. He comes in the game. He makes the, the, the right tackle of the Broncos fall on his face. He comes in there and plants Elway. And Elway gets up and looks around like, "Who's? give me the number of that truck that just hit me. So, <laughs> Is that a Toyota or a Ford? So uh, it happens again. And so finally, the, and the place is 80,000 people there. It's in Buffalo. They're going crazy. They're going crazy. They're yelling, ban it, ban it. And, and so... Uh, which later became Biscuit, which was his his boyhood nickname. But so now it's it's third down, and they 
Well, Corey, our defensive coordinator flops he and Bruce. So Bruce is now on the left-hand side, and and uh, and Cornelius is on the right. And Elway comes up, and he looks, and he can't find him. And he sees Bruce Smith over there on the right, and he looks over on the left-hand side, and, and, and there's Cornelius. And he calls timeout <laughs> and runs to the bench, <laughs> and he's yelling at Dan Reeves. <laughs> And he's telling, he's pointing at Bennett, saying, "You better get somebody to block that guy. Get somebody in the game to block that guy." <laughs> so, <laughs> that's how he affected the game. And the other one was in Philadelphia. We need the game to clinch the uh, a wild card berth, which would have, probably would have been '93. Uh, and uh, I think it's Spagnola playing, who was a good tight end from Yale, playing uh, tight end for uh, Philadelphia. And they had the Ohio State running back, uh, who was really a good back. Um, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, but he was he was really terrific. Um, they're ahead. All they need to do is get a first down, and the game's over, and we're probably not going to make the playoffs. So they pitched the ball to him, to the running back. Spagnola Keith beats Cornelius to the punch and is going to hook him. Now, you never run inside a hook block. Never. A hook block is when the tight end comes out and tries to get his hat, his helmet outside the outside shoulder of the of the linebacker so he can wall him off and, and seal him inside. So you never run inside a hook block because that's what they want you to do. So Cornelius realizes that Spagnola's got him, so he runs inside him. And he makes a left turn on the line of scrimmage that a Le Mans car couldn't possibly <laughs> replicate. Goes flat down the line of scrimmage. The back now has turned up the field, gained the first down, and is maybe running for a touchdown. Cornelius tracks him from behind, catches up to him, tomahawks the ball out of his hands from behind, it bounces up right into Cornelius's arms. He turns around and returns it for about 20 yards, and we're still alive. So we go and kick a field goal, of course, to win the game and go into the playoffs. We're watching the play the, the next day on film in slow motion, Marvin and I. And, and I said, holy bleep. I've never seen <laughs> anything like that in my entire— How did he do that? That's impossible. You can't do that. And Marv turned to me with his typical deadpan Marv humor and said, why don't they all do it that way? <laughs> <laughs> well, the answer is because they're all not Cornelius Bennett. Yeah, In there, fact, there very no few. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, okay, I'm going to take a shot. Was well, for our uh, for our Ohio State fans, I think it was Keith Byers was the running back. Keith, Keith Byers, that's exactly correct. Yes. Sorry. Good job. Good job. You beat me to it. All right. Uh, moving on. Okay, this is interesting. I don't know. If we actually have ever talked about this much on the show. Could Bill talk about his time in Montreal and the CFL in general? What does Bill think of the product? What, if anything, does he like that they do in the CFL? I assume they're talking about, you know, the different rules and the motions and the, the length of the field and so on. So let us give us your CFL take. Well, let's talk about 
the rules first and foremost. They're unique to the CFL, and that's part of what makes it a unique part of Canadian culture. Um, the uh, the field is uh, 60, 65 yards wide and 125 yards long, and and midfield is is 50, 55 yards, not the 50-yard line. It's called center field. Uh, because the field is so big and so long, you play with 12 men aside. Uh, it's really an extra receiver and an extra defensive back. Um, but uh, uh, th- that's vastly different from uh, the U.S. game. Um, you have three downs, which makes it hugely different because obviously you have to uh, you have to uh, uh, move the ball pretty dramatically in order to gain first downs. Uh, you know, you got to gain five yards per play, so that leads to much much more passing than was used to be the case in the NFL. When the NFL was throwing the ball 45% of the time, the CFL was throwing it 70% of the time, 70 to 75% of the time. Um, the, uh, the kicking game is vastly different in that uh, a punt uh, can be returned, but if it's not returned and it goes over the goal line, the kicking team gets one point. It's called a rouge, and uh, obviously from the French. And, uh, and so that's very different. That brings in a lot, of, uh, a lot of strategy on how you kick the ball, to whom you kick it, where you kick it, how you cover it. I coached special teams in Winnipeg, and, and it, it was the, one of the most fun assignments I ever had because uh, you, know, you, you were able to directly affect the game. Uh, missed field goals can be returned, and they also count as one point or used to. I think they've changed the rules since then, but they used to, even if you missed it, uh, you still got one point. Um, so the kicking game rules are vastly different, and the returns are much more exciting because everybody's spread out all over this huge field. So the players are much smaller. Um, now, linemen are by much smaller, I mean, Offensive linemen are in the 270 range. Um, probably today they're in the 290 range. And in my day, they were in the 265, 270 range. Defensive linemen, the same. Uh, and then outside rushers and, and, and corners and wide receivers and running backs, uh, much smaller on, uh, on average uh, because you have to be in order to cover that much ground. You can't have the big hog mollies running around at 300 pounds, covering right. 65 yards uh, of width. Not so, work. Um, it's not going to work. And, of course, the kickers are, are really a tremendous um, uh, asset to your team if you have a good one. And that's where I learned that kickers win championships. Yeah. We had, uh, we had a guy, uh, two guys in Winnipeg, uh, Trevor Kennedy and Bobby Emerson, that were – Bobby was the punter and Trevor was the place kicker who were dynamite and, and their weapons. Uh, so it's much more of a field position game um, than people are used to seeing uh, in, in the NFL. Um, and, and that goes back a long, that, that changed in the NFL a long time ago. Um, interestingly enough, uh, I learned from coach Levy and Coach Murphy, who, of course, was the offensive line coach with Coach Levy in Montreal, 
Cal Murphy in in Winnipeg that uh, if you're if you're smart, um, you you do what people aren't expecting. So in both places, we basically had I formation or wing T running games, which had lots of reverses, lots of rollouts, lots of traps, lots of play passes. We were not just a drop back passing team. And uh, we utilized the tight end very effectively. Peter Dallariva in Montreal is a CFL uh, Hall of Famer, outstanding player. Um, and uh, we basically, because you, you're only allowed so many imports, meaning non-Canadians on a team, um, the Canadians, generally speaking, are the middle safety. All the rest are Americans in the secondary. Um, the middle linebacker, although our middle linebacker was a Penn Stater, Chuck Zapek in Montreal, um, the, the nose tackle and the inside tackles, and most of the offensive linemen are Canadian. And then the the uh, the outside rushers uh, and the wide receivers, two of the wide receivers usually are American. Um, you play with four wides all the time. Any back, anybody can be in motion toward the line of scrimmage before the snap. So that makes for an interesting running game because – if you put a fullback in motion and you run him up to the line of scrimmage before the snap and he's out, he's outflanked the end guy on the line of scrimmage, those are collisions you don't want to be around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really. <laughs> yeah. Woo-wee. Which is why it made so much sense to run the ball. So Marv ran it out of the wing tee in Montreal. We ran it basically from the I formation in, in Winnipeg and had a, a CFL Hall of Famer and all-timer, Willard Reeves, as our running back in uh, in uh, Canada. And then your quarterback, ironically enough, in Montreal, our quarterback was more of a traditional American-style quarterback, uh, Sonny, uh, Sonny Wade. Um, in Montreal, I'm sorry, in Winnipeg, it was Tommy Clements from Notre Dame. Many old-time Notre Dame fans will remember him beating Alabama in the Sugar Bowl. Um, Tommy is a CFL Hall of Famer and uh, uh, now coaching in, in the NFL. He was uh, 5'10", 5'11", um, you know, rollout quarterback, but he, he, could, he could do everything. He was a magnificent thrower, brilliant football mind, great person, um, as low-key and as, as understated as you'll find. Um, we traded 11 players for Tommy in Winnipeg. Our first year there, it made us an instant cont uh, contender. That's all we needed. Willard Reeves was a rookie then. Um, we we put to, we about a third of the way through the season, we put together this dynamic team. He was the last piece in the puzzle. He was the Cornelius Bennett of of, of Winnipeg. He was the the last piece we needed. And opening day, or his opening day, uh, we beat somebody. I think Saskatchewan, forty-seven to seven. And we took them out of the game, you know, midway in the fourth quarter after we'd scored the 47th point. 
and and the whole stadium was just yelling, Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. <laughs> and I was standing next to him on the sideline. I said, how does it feel to be the Messiah? <laughs> and he goes, it's his Rudy moment. He goes, I hope they don't crucify me. <laughs> that was him, you know. No <laughs> day. And, and he's, he's just a magnificent player. And Marv brought him to, much, to uh, Kansas City, and he played a couple of years for us in Kansas City. Um, but um, as you can tell, a lot of happy memories, great people that I worked with, very different in terms of pay scale, working conditions for players, mostly all the players hold other jobs during the regular season. Practice doesn't begin until four o'clock. Um, and, and so it really is a, a if not a part-time job, it, it's, it's, it's not totally full-time the way it is in the NFL. The salaries are much lower, uh, but it's a fun game. It holds a special place in the heart of Canadians. And the Grey Cup is uh, second only to the Stanley Cup in, in Canada as a sporting event. Yeah, you, you know, as, as an agent in those days, you learned uh, to use that, which were the American positions generally and which were the Canadian positions to try and get people up there, Bill. And, you know, because they're, they're going to limit it because there is so much pride because, I mean, the CFL is older than the NFL. Yes, it is. That's correct. That's Responded, correct. Right? So, uh, it's, you know, you, yeah, and um, did, did, when you came back, were you saying things like a boot? And eh? <laughs> no, no, and I never quite got there anyway. <laughs> uh, hey, I well. lost my, I lost my New York accent, but <laughs> I never quite, I never quite got the Canadian part of it. Although I spent eleven years in Buffalo, which might as well be, uh, you know, it's yeah, just it's across true. the, true. it's just across the Niagara River from Canada, uh, Southern Ontario, Canada South. Canada South. That's exactly right. I, I I had Mike Kerrigan. Remember him, Bill, as a quarterback yep, in the, sure for the do. Hamilton Tiger Cats for many years. Great, great guy. Oh, you would have loved it. We had an Irish wedding at Niagara Falls. Everybody singing Danny Boy at the end, drunk with their arms around. It was one of the, the best wedding I've ever been to. <laughs> Drunks at an uh, Irish wedding? Gee, I never heard of that. Oh, yeah, a surprise. <laughs> yeah, only to be topped by funerals. <laughs> that's well, true. <laughs> that's true. You, it's just one less drunk, right? That's the old joke. Yeah, that's uh, there you go. By the way, for our listeners, I, I am I'm, I'm proudly Irish, so don't don't take that as a as a sarcastic remark. <laughs> exactly, and 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 you know, and, and, and they call me Rick O'Shafer. <laughs> Oh yeah, no. My, my wife and my uh, mother-in-law would kill me if we said anything negative about the Irish. So uh, not yeah, on go. this show. All right, guys. Well, we hit right. up some Canada stuff, Bill and Chris. I told you we'd do it. Well, we've done it. All right, moving on. This is going to be something that we probably at some point will do a full show on. Uh, but we have a question, Rick. Feel free because you obviously have some experience and expertise with this one as well. Uh, can Bill talk about what happened with the AAF and will there ever be a successful spring or summer league? I think the the question, the answer to the second question, as long as the NFL uh, will not and the NFLPA will not support a developmental league, and the NFL has practice squads which range from fourteen to maybe sixteen players, the answer is no, because no player is leaving the National Football League or even the National Football League practice squad 
where they can make decent money in the off season. I mean, full time job year round money in the off season just for working out um, to go play in in a developmental league where they're going to get paid significantly less. So that's that's point one. Um, there is no and and I told Charlie Ebersole, who was the founder of the AAF. If the NFL expands the practice squad, we're out of business. Understand that. You know, we, we've got to fold the tent at that point. Um, secondly, um, it is so expensive um, to start up a pro football league. Um, you can't do it in a garage with a laptop computer. It's it just, you know, it's not HP. You, you you can't it's it's not that kind of a startup it's labor intensive it is medically almost impossible to do it without incurring phenomenal cost and Rick can talk more about that that's the area he handled and is expert in um the equipment itself is incredibly expensive the insurance is either cannot be written or is extremely prohibitive in this day and age. So um, it, when you start out and you say, well, okay, I've got um, $200 million and that should, that should last us two years. No, it's, it's probably not going to last you a year when it's all said and done. Yeah. So it's extremely uh, prohibitive from a cost standpoint. And, um, and, you're not going to get the television or gate revenue to support that. So why would a businessman enter into such a, a, a situation? I mean, good businessmen are good businessmen because they make a profit, not because they waste money. And then finally, I think the idea that the NFL should support it is, uh, is not going to happen uh, simply because they don't have to. The collegiate draft supplies all the players they need. They may not be fully formed, and coaches may decry, and football people like myself and Rick may decry the fact that they're not fully formed, and we do have a shortage of offensive linemen, and we do have a shortage of backup quarterbacks. But the bottom line is that the investment to the owners is not worth the return. And and I think the final nail in the spring league coffin, if you will, or the developmental league coffin, if you will, was the, the the brutal downsizing of minor league baseball. And don't blame that all on Rob Manfred. When I worked for the Chicago Blitz, it was owned by Eddie Einhorn and and Jerry Reinsdorf, who also owned the Chicago Bulls and Chicago White Sox. And Eddie Einhorn, who was my direct boss, God rest his soul, used to always say, Bill, we don't need six minor league teams. That's ridiculous. It's a waste of money. He knew I was a, you know, giant baseball fan. I don't mean giant as in New York Giants, but, you know, crazy <laughs> <Right>. baseball fan. <laughs> and and he would say, Bill, we, we, we don't need six uh, minor league teams, and we don't need them spread all over the country incurring the travel costs and the housing costs and the player costs. We don't need it. We can get by with three, and we can do it at the spring training site in Arizona. 
Well, they haven't gone to the central site just yet, but they downsized the minor leagues by almost 50%. So uh, that's not lost on their brethren in in the, in the NFL. So in case this this listener was having a faint hope that this would happen, I'll say a couple positive things. I, I, I basically, in the end, agree with everything Bill said. And when you look at the economics, the way those tie together, Bill and I had way too many discussions when the league was, was in trouble about this. Bill, we always had, right, the, the, the AAA model in mind, right, in terms of really the economics. And Bill owned part of a team, was very familiar with that. Um, to me, uh, I thought we put a qual. I thought the AAF put a, a, a quality football product on the field. I was very proud of what we were able to do. Um, I think the fans found it entertaining. So I think there is, um, a, a, if you're talking about a, a spring league, a market out there for 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 people who don't live near NFL stadiums, can't afford NFL tickets. Uh, you know, would otherwise never see a pro football game. I, I, I think there is a desire out there. I, I think the big difference is you can't operate really any kind of a significant professional sports league without good money from television. And we, we certainly didn't have that in, uh, in our league. Uh, I don't know if The Rock is going to go ahead and try and really revive the XFL, if he can get a better deal um, you know, than, than we had. Uh, Bill's right. I feel like if the NFL and the NFLPA would go along with it, uh, that a developmental league would have a place. You know, the, the you know the the but the but the problem is, you know, for example, uh, the players and the agents. What what are you going to insure uh, them against? Are you going to insure them against? The fifty thousand dollars that they're going to make in the alternative league, are you going to have to insure them for the league minimum that they'd make if they were able to go back up to the NFL? And that probably is going to be sort of the the would be the really the hardest thing to solve unless you're really willing to drop down and put an inferior product of guys that just aren't even on the margins um, of the NFL. And in that case. You're not going to get a TV contract that, that, that sticks around, and you're not going to draw enough fans. So there's a lot of things militating against it. I think the idea is a good idea. I always felt there could be three leagues, the, the NFL, the, the um, CFL, and a, a spring league if it were set up right. But the challenges just may outweigh uh, the opportunity. Well, there you have it. I'm sure at some point we'll do a little deeper dive into that one. And without further ado, Rick, hit us into the next one. Absolutely. Okay. The question, Bill, is how come James Robinson seemingly came out of nowhere? Does that happen? It reminds me of Arian Foster. Well, no, it doesn't happen. He doesn't come out of nowhere. That's why you have scouts and a scouting system. Um, He was a player who, as I understand it, was injured some during his college career, Uh, didn't get a lot of tape. Um, He's not a blazer. He's in the 4-6 range, which puts him below the fourth round as a potential NFL draft choice, played at a lower-level school. 
uh, but was signed as a collegiate free agent because the Jacksonville Jaguars had scouted him and liked him very much, brought him to camp, gave him a chance to make the team. He did, and he's going to have a great career. And it happens every year in the National Football League. I always talk about Gary Brackett, uh, Rutgers linebacker, very undersized, 5 feet 11, maybe 230 pounds, could run like the wind, very instinctive, very tough. Um, the last guy we signed uh, on Sunday after the draft, I think we gave him $2,000. And truth be told, I was the one who insisted we sign him. Nobody else wanted him. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and he came in and, and had a rough first year because the kind of person he was, he donated bone marrow to his brother who was dying of cancer, who subsequently succumbed. So he spent a year on injured reserve, um, and, and Tony kept him there because he'd shown us enough in minicamp. But then once he got his feet on the ground, literally, um, he became the defensive signal caller and captain and played for uh, as a starter for us in two Super Bowls and had a wonderful 11-year career and is right now a, 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 a restaurant, uh, a, you know, a, a very successful restaurant tour. I, I hope there can be continue to be successful restaurateurs, but yeah, yeah, that's this, right. This is another example of what you always talk about when somebody asks, "This guy came out of nowhere." No, this guy didn't come out of nowhere. He was scouted. People saw the talent. What it means is nobody had him on their mock draft board. That's coming out of nowhere these days, and that's just the difference between the mock draft and the NFL, right, Bill? Yeah, that's the difference between the mock draft, which is which is story, and the NFL, which is reality. I mean, we're really out there looking for those kind of guys. The guys who do the mock drafts are just ranking the people they know from one to three hundred and thirty-six. I mean, it's it's that's all they're interested in doing, um, and, and and we're actually interested in finding football players who are going to make us win. So we 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 turn over every rock, literally. And his career prospects probably only went up that much more with a little win in Los Angeles this week by the New York Jets as he might get to play with a certain quarterback uh, next season. So uh, it should be interesting to see how all that hey. shakes out. We got two more to go. Let's see how it works yeah, out. But Stranger that, things have that, happened. Can't uh, got to say that that restored my faith in, in, in the human spirit, the Jets winning that ball game. Very, very proud of it's, them for doing that. Gonna be a, a happier Christmas, maybe, uh, in New York. Well, all right, here we go. On to the next one. So, a lot of social media scuttlebutt this week. Uh, I know you did an interview down in Atlanta, so I think this conversation is probably born out of that. So, can Pill talk a little bit about the situation in Atlanta, what he thinks of it as a job, and the advantages and disadvantages? This is kind of a fun one for you, Bill, because you are a strong team president. What are the advantages and disadvantages of being a GM with a strong team president like Rich McKay? Well, it's really a good job for a number of reasons. Number one, you've got an established and quality quarterback in Matt Ryan, and you probably have him for four to five more years. Uh, you've got Julio Jones for at least three more years. You've got the other Alabama receiver, Ridley, uh, for uh, uh, you know a, a good long period of time. Um, the problems are largely on defense. The offensive line is young, and that's fixable. Uh, with an outstanding offensive line coach. Uh, you need uh, two bell cow running backs. Ito Smith is a really good third guy, but you need two bell cows. 
uh, there, but they're not hard to come by. You got an owner uh, in, in Arthur Blank who's really a committed owner who does everything first class, uh, treats the players exceptionally well, treats the families exceptionally well. The facility in Flowery Branch is outstanding, and you can live out in the country. You don't, uh, you know, it, it's it's a little more expensive and maybe a little less desirable to live in the city of Atlanta. You can live in the suburbs and and not have to fight the Atlanta traffic, which is. If you if you've ever had to do it, you realize it it rivals New York sometimes during rush hour. You don't have to do that. Eighty five is the dumbest road ever created in the history of traffic, <laughs> outside of maybe ninety five into two seventy here. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We're yeah, we're worse, Scott. So um, th- there are all those advantages. Having Rich McKay as a team president is a huge advantage. He put together the. Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, he broke in uh, as a as a club lawyer and executive under Hugh Culverhouse, who was possibly the cheapest owner in all of sports history. Um, <laughs> That's true. So he, he knows what life is like on the other side. Um, the the Bucks, by the way, to this day, uh, even though they 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 won a Super Bowl under Rich and John Gruden. And now are, you know, I'm, I'm sure going to make the playoffs under Bruce Aarons and Tom Brady and 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 uh, Mark Light. Um, they're they're still the losingest team of, of any franchise professional franchise. That's how bad that was. So Rich got that straightened out and then went to Atlanta as the team president. Got the stadium built. Um, he, he understands football. Watches film every day. Um, played at Princeton. Uh, understands the game, understands the salary cap, is the chairman of the competition committee. So he's one of the most powerful executives in, in, in all of the NFL, which certainly helps. If he wants to talk to the commissioner about something, all he has to do is pick up the phone. You don't have to go through an intermediary. So uh, that's a huge advantage. Uh, so uh, what's not to like, including the weather? <laughs> exactly. I think it's a exactly. great job. <laughs> And and I've had numerous calls from people asking this very same question, and I've given them that answer. I think it's a great job. And he certainly can also see the game from a coach's standpoint, growing up the son of John McKay. So, I mean, he's a and, and yeah. great guy along with J.K. So, you know. Yes, I mean, that's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Uh, here's one, Bill. I'm sorry this is going to bring back a bad memory. How surprised was Bill and the Colts, really, you were Bill and the Colts, by the onside kick in Super Bowl forty-four, And was that the toughest loss of Bill's career? Um, the answer, the first answer is not very. Um, you know, it's always there. And, uh, and you have to be prepared for it. Um, and, the, and the, you know, the front was aware of it, um, that they could do it. Hank Basket unfortunately didn't handle the ball cleanly enough, and uh, and and obviously we didn't get it, and and the worm turned. We had missed a third and one prior to that, um, it, that that you know was a, a pivotal play in the game. Um, that one, first of all, any Super Bowl loss, and I'm an expert on losing. I think I hold the world record in losing Super Bowls. Um, <laughs> In six, lost five. Um, the 
that's the hardest loss you can ever have because it is the top of the mountain. Uh, it is for all the marbles. Um, no matter how many times you go, it's still the thrill of a lifetime. Um, and then all of a sudden your heart is ripped out. So it's, I always feel for the loser because I know exactly what that feels like. Um, and it, and it's personal and it's personal for all of the people on the team, many of whom will never have another opportunity to get that ring. Um, it is the top of the mountain. It's what everybody dreams about when they're 10 years old and they start playing football. It's always about, you know, winning the Super Bowl. It's always about hoisting the Lombardi Trophy. So when that dream is is denied, it's it's the toughest loss other than, well, let me say this. It's the hardest professional loss you will ever have in your life. And other than losing a family member or a really close friend, there's nothing worse. Um, and it takes a while to get over. It, it lingers. Um, uh, there is no Super Bowl hangover, by the way. That's a myth. But it, but it does linger. It takes until April to get it out of your system. And sometimes you you don't. Um, so they're all hard. The hardest one, however, was Super Bowl twenty five in Buffalo because um, I can remember standing on the sidelines and, and, and watching the ball come off Scott Norwood's foot and saying, we're world champions. We're world champions. We're world champions. Oh, you know, it's like <laughs> someone just took a baseball bat and hit you right across the head with it um, and then kicked you in the stomach to boot. I mean, it's just awful. And and Scotty carried that burden with him for a long time. Thank God he's over he's over it now, and and it remains a popular figure in Buffalo and and is able to, you know, be the Scotty Norwood he always was, which is a high character family man, great role model for kids. Um, but it was hard. It was hard for him, and and, and I've I've always felt for him. Um, so glad to see him come back to some of the Buffalo events now. Um, but that was the hardest one. That was the hardest one of all. The only thing you got to say is, is the, the predicate to that sentence, though, was in six. So, as Bill, look, as you and I have discussed, it, it, it doesn't do anything to diminish uh, the, the, the pain. But, uh, you know, in the free agency era, you know, uh, getting into the playoffs, you know, eight out of 10 years and getting to six Super Bowls is extraordinary uh, in anybody's career. So, you know, once once that opening uh, kickoff happens in the Super Bowl, there's nothing, obviously, someone who's assembled the team can do about it. And a million things can win or lose like a ball drifting wide right. But, you know, look, you're in the Hall of Fame because you got to six. So uh, go ahead, Scott. Well, and Rick's in the Hall of Fame for sort of editing the grammar of people's Twitter questions before we get into the uh, get into the question asking. So let that let that be a lesson when we when we do ask anything three, you better be on your grammar p's and q's, or our resident attorney is going to catch you. I have been accused of being in that Hall of Fame before. I just like to share this with our listeners because it, it's a great question, and and it it. It puts in context what the quarterback, I think what the coaches, 
um, what the general manager feels, uh, A, when you make it, which is, which is absolute elation. And it's, and it's the purest elation. The Super Bowl has so much hype and commercialism in it that actually when you win, you don't even come together as a team after the game and say the prayer that you normally do. You don't have a chance to, to, to celebrate with your teammates until two hours after the game because they're whisked away to press conferences and other such nonsense. So um, that part of it is, is uh, all hype. But the the idea that you're going to be the world champion and you've got the chance to play in that game um, sets in the day after. And when you arrive at the site, it's even more real. I remember in, in Super Bowl XXV riding to the stadium and turning onto Dale Mabry Boulevard, which abuts the stadium in Tampa, and one of the players said to me, hey, Bill, look at that. There's our logo on the on the stadium wall and you know the players are in their 20s some some even in their 30s we're all still little kids as Roy Campanella the great Dodger player said we're all still little kids at heart we're still believers and so when when you finally realize man I'm in this this is it I, I've reached the top of the mountain um, there's one more step to go as we used to our our Rallying cry in in Buffalo was one more mountain, run more river to cross. Um, the so there's that emotion which is huge, huge, and then you wait all day to play the game. So when you get to the stadium and it's filled with your fans and 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 all your family and friends, people who watched you drove you to the 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 Pop Warner game, you know. Your Pop Warner coach, your high school coach, um, it's so real to them and so important to them um, that there is, it's not the media pressure that bothers anybody in the Super Bowl. It's the fact that you're playing for the hopes and dreams of so many of these people that helped you along the way. And it is not uncommon at all in the warm-ups and in the introductions to have players in tears. Um, we had a player in Buffalo named Hal Garner, who we, in those days you warmed up an hour and a half before the game because of all the falderall and the pregame show. They've, they've since quite correctly cut it down. So you're only, you, you, you warm up maybe 40 minutes or so before the game. Well, you leave the field 40 minutes or so before the game. But we're out there, so it's almost, you know, it's darn near, an hour and a half before game time, and, and we, we just finished the, the, the calisthenics and we're lined up going through some individual drills and I'm standing in the end zone and, and Hal was about six feet three and he came over to me and grabbed me by the lapels and picked me up and squeezed me as, as I thought he was going to break all my ribs and he said, thank you, Mr. <laughs> Pete, thank you for bringing me here. You know, it was, <laughs> it, it was the darndest thing I've ever experienced. And 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 then you know invariably when you come on the field even for the warm up the families are in the stands they're there because they're going to cheer for your team from the time you leave the locker room 2 hours before the game until it's over and you look up and you know there's mom and dad wow it's a pretty good thing 
it's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. All right. Well, we are going to, speaking of mom and dad, we are going to bring Ask Bill Anything to home on kind of an interesting note. This is, this is probably, in my opinion, one of the coolest questions we've gotten because this was all new to me. So, all right, here we go. St. Francis High School has a nice reach in the NFL. I want to thank Bill Polian for the, the fact that his sons went to St. Francis. Can Bill talk a little bit about St. Francis and a certain alum named Daybol? Yeah, well, St. Francis High School, uh, uh, Athol Springs, New York, uh, outside Buffalo. Um, uh, I was general manager of the Buffalo Bills. Uh, my two eldest boys, uh, Christopher and Brian, went there and played there for a great coach, coaches named Jerry Smith and John Chavetta. Uh, they both played other sports, but they were principally football players. Um, their teammates were, among others, Tom Telesco, uh, uh, Dave Caldwell, uh, Brian Daybol, uh, who is now the offensive coordinator of the Buffalo Bills and may soon be, he, among other things, he's been the offensive coordinator at Alabama. He's had a long career in coaching. Uh, he was also with the New England Patriots. Um, and and he's going to be a candidate for a head coaching job, I'm sure, in this cycle and cycles to come. He's done a great job with the Bills offense and he's home in Western New York. And uh, so that's uh, five guys from, uh, uh, from, from one iteration of that school uh, in the NFL. And then um, the assistant personnel director of, or the personnel director of the Washington Redskins I forget his first name now. His last name is Smith. Uh, he was a, a player at St. Francis. Uh, and AJ, AJ Sung, isn't it Kyle? Kyle Smith, that's right. And, uh, there you go. And Steve Tasker's son is uh, is now playing in Canada, and uh, and he's a St. Francis guy. So uh, it is the, 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 the cradle of pro football in Western New York. And uh, obviously, a lot of those guys got their start as ball boys in the in the, in the uh, Buffalo Bills training camps, and uh, proud of them. Talked to uh, almost all of them today, except Brian Daybull, because he's getting the game plan ready. <laughs> it, it's uh, I think the subtext of this question. It's an interesting one, Bill. Were you ever put in a position where if you might have had to hire a head coach? What if you had to hire somebody you went to high school with? <laughs> well, you know, I, I've never been in that position. Uh, but uh, I think that, uh, you know, you try to make the best decision you can make. It, it, it's And you put those relationships uh, don't ever die. But you, you really, when, when you make that decision, uh, Jim Irsay said this, and, and it's the best advice that I've ever gotten, and I repeat it often when I give talks to aspiring coaches and executives, and that is that Jim said to me, Bill, your job is to be a good steward of the franchise. That's what you need to do, ultimately. And so every decision that you make has to be not about you or not even about me. It has to be about the future of the franchise. And my job as the owner is to be a good steward of, of the franchise for the fans, for the league, 
and for the city. So um, he said it clearly. Um, it's correct. And, uh, and, and it's a message to live by. So when you make that decision, it's really not your decision. It's a decision that, that affects so many others that you have to take all of the personal stuff out of it, make the right professional decision. Uh, but Phil, uh, it, 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 you're, you are still thankfully have been in a position when you spotted talent, like some of the guys we've talked about, you've wonderfully been in a position to help them. So, I mean, I think, you know, you're not, you're not giving somebody a spot they don't deserve or anything like that. But when, when someone of a Bill Polian stature can put in the good word for somebody, that goes a long way with getting another job that you're not in charge of. Well, you know, there's, there's the saying, pay it forward. Um, uh, I never turned down a call from aspiring coaches or executives who, who, who are looking for advice or, or, or just to bounce ideas off. Um, I'm paying forward what, the, and I'm obligated to, uh, what, what Coach Levy and, and, and others, Kyle Murphy and people like that gave me. So that, that's, the, that's a great part of the game. When I see a Frank Reich succeed and, and, and do a great job, you know, and think back when he first joined us at 22 and, and you know, you look at a guy and say, you know, he's a pretty special guy. And he's probably going to have a good career with us, and and maybe he'll go on to bigger things. Well, he has. So that's a, that's that's a that's a marvelous feeling to to have helped somebody along that road. Yes, absolutely. Still going to be weird if you got to interview a guy you went to high school with. That's going to be a strange All right. one. <laughs> All right, okay, we got that, Scott. We got that. We guys I went to high school with are almost always, you know, they're not around many of them. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, we, you we never got, know. Much less them. coaching. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, that is Ask Bill Anything number two. We still got a lot of stuff to get to. I'm sure once we get through the next series of shows, we'll have another Ask Bill Anything on the horizon. A little bit of housekeeping uh, just to get everybody prepped. So uh, we're going to switch it up a little bit for the playoffs. We're going to do our drop days on Fridays. Uh, right before the playoff games to get you ready for the playoffs. So in next week's episode, uh, don't be expecting it on the 4th. We're going to drop it on the 8th. So give you a little treat uh, headed into the playoff weekend. Get you fully prepped as only Bill can uh, for what to expect from the first weekend of the NFL playoffs. Thank you so much, guys. And uh, if we don't talk to you, have a happy new year. Uh, It was certainly a fun one in 2020 getting to do this and share this phenomenal show with you guys. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, I, we hope and pray for a, for a better 2021, one where everybody can enjoy and be safe. And thank you so much for sharing 2020 with us. Thank you all very much. Very happy New Year. And let's hope it's uh, a lot happier than the, the one past. Very cool. Thank you, guys. All right. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, 
but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.